Welcome to Saltwater Strategists, a podcast from the Australian Naval Institute. In this series, we talk to a range of domestic and international military strategy planners, academics, historians, policy advisors, and current and ex-naval officers to debate and discuss maritime and naval strategy in a rapidly evolving geopolitical landscape, particularly in the Pacific and Indian Oceans. I'm your host, Simon Wallstrom from the Australian Naval Institute, and this podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BAE Systems. Is China at war with us right now? No, it's not at war with us right now. And I think it's dangerous to say that China is at war because that perhaps leads us on a path to particular conflicts. In this episode today of the Saltwater Strategist podcast, we have the pleasure of two international guests here in Canberra today who were speakers just recently at the Australian Naval Institute's annual Goldrick Seminar where we reflected on the Corbett Papers and the 100th year of the passing of Sir Julian Corbett. Along with a series of global conversations that have been hosted by the King's College London and the US War College, historians and thinkers alike have been reflecting and debating the renowned British maritime strategist Sir Julian Corbett. And even as we approach 100 years since his passing, there is still a lot of deep-rooted Western Navy strategy ideals and beliefs that are still prevalent today. Correct or wrong? Well, here today I have two guests who will discuss some of the increasingly confident demonstrations of maritime force and power projection in the Pacific region by the Chinese Communist Party, their increasing dominance of trade and the supply chains over the high seas, and with a seemingly growing domestic population that appears supportive and ready to support their leadership. So from the United States, we have Rear Admiral retired Jeffrey Harley. Jeff served in the United States Navy after attending the University of Minnesota, graduating with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, and received a Master of Arts degrees from the Naval War College and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Additionally, he served as a military fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations in New York, and as a member of the Council of the American Society of Naval Engineers. A surface warfare officer, assignments include uh, time on frigates, destroyers, and cruisers, which culminated in the command of USS Milius, which is DDG-69, and commander of destroyer squadron Deseron 9. Whilst commanding Milius, the ship participated in combat operations supporting Operation Iraqi Freedom, and his crew won the Battle Efficiency Award and the Major E. Sterrett Battleship Fund Award for overall combat readiness. Ashore, Admiral Harley served as fleet scheduler for commander-in-chief of the US Pacific Fleet, Executive Assistant to the Director of Operational Plans and Joint Force Development J7 on the Joint Staff, Asia-Pacific Branch Head in Deep Blue, Director for Strategic Actions for the Chief of Naval Operations, and as a 20th Director, White House Situation Room. As a Flag Officer, he served as Vice Director, Strategy Plans and Policy, J5 at Central Command, Commander Amphibious Force 7 Fleet, and his last assignment as Assistant Deputy of Chief of Naval Operations, Operations, Plans and Strategy. Admiral Harley was also the 56th president of the U.S. Naval War College. Amongst many awards, they include the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, Legion of Merit, Bronze Star, accepted on behalf of his crew, Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal, Joint Service Achievement Medal, and the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal. And I'm also joined today by Professor Paul Mitchell. Paul is the Professor of Defence Studies at the Canadian Defence College, where he has been since 1988, holding a Bachelor of Arts Honours from the Wilfrid Laurier University, and a Master of Arts in War Studies from King's College London, and a Doctorate from Queen's University in Kingston. Following the completion of his doctoral studies, he worked as a postdoctoral fellow at Dalhousie University in Halifax, the Centre for Foreign Policy Studies, where he assisted with the production of the Royal Canadian Navy's Adjusting Course Strategy. Professor Mitchell was awarded the Literary Award by the United States Naval Institute and the Service Naval Association for his paper on network-centric warfare and small navies, being the first non-American and the first civilian to be so recognized. He's been published in the International Institute for Strategic Studies, the prestigious Adelphi paper series for his work on network-centric warfare, coalition operations in the age of U.S. military primacy. Just recently, he was awarded the Canadian Forces Medallion for Distinguished Services. Thank you, gentlemen. It's an honor to have you both uh, here today to discuss what is obviously rapidly becoming, uh, some would say, a serious suite of developments uh, in the Indo-Pacific 
uh, with seemingly increasing acts of high-stakes brinkmanship uh, being pursued by the CCP uh, with regards to Taiwan and South Pacific Islands. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure. Before we dive in to some of the topics today around um, a post-engagement or a post-kinetic environment from a maritime perspective, I'm keen to reflect on some of the, the points raised this week at the annual Goldrick Seminar on Wednesday um, over at the Australian Defence Force Academy. With both yourselves being speakers uh, on the subject, some would say still today the, the um, strategy and the ideas of Sir Julian Corbett are relevant and still actually um, something we should uh, still be considering as a baseline. So starting with yourself, Jeff, and then Paul, if I may, what reflections and thoughts do you have on the day's proceedings and anything later that evening uh, where we heard from the Honourable Dr. Brendan Nelson, AO, at the uh, Defence Force Academy itself? It was absolutely a, a brilliant day and a wonderful conference. I think it gave everyone a, a deeper understanding of the, of the maritime strategies that are in play and Corbett's relevance uh, in shaping those maritime strategies. Uh, their application to today uh, is as, as relevant as it was 100 years ago uh, when Corbett passed away. I think it was also important to see the role of history and in, in understanding uh, some of the different elements and, and contours uh, of those strategies. Uh, moreover, I think it was telling to see the deep appreciation that everyone had for the sacrifices made by Australia in their contributions to the global world order. Uh, in terms of the uh, brilliant uh, presentation by uh, Dr. Brendan Nelson, uh, it was highly motivational speech about uh, those who have gone before and the sacrifices made by Australian uh, service members. Yeah, no, there was definitely a, a sense of a rousing element to Dr. Nelson's speech. You're absolutely right. And I'm sure that resonated to some degree with the midshipmen and the junior officers in the, in the room that day. And, and, and Paul, yourself. Yeah, so I, I would echo uh, Jeff's comments. Uh, it, was a, it was a terrific conference, and I, I learned uh, quite a bit uh, in, in the various engagements that, that took place. My big takeaways, uh, I think, were the ongoing discussions on the role of history in teaching strategy. Uh, and and the uh, you know the centrality or or of of history or whether whether there are other vectors for for teaching strategy, uh, there were some really great discussions about how valuable strategic theory is for small or medium powers as opposed to just the great powers, and and lastly I think you know and this is in keeping with Corbett because Corbett was a historian, but he was also an educator of professional military officers. And, and I, so I think it wasn't really addressed in the, uh, in the session, but you couldn't escape the implications of both uh, the relevance of history and theory in, in the education of professional military officers. And it's something that I hold very dear in terms of my role at the uh, Canadian, and I know Jeff as the president of the Naval War College as well. We both hold that very, very dear to our hearts. Absolutely. There was an interesting talk actually this week by Dr. John Reeve uh, of the University of New South Wales, Canberra, where he discussed uh, and raised some of the failings in the teachings and the strategies of uh, Sir Julian Corbett in his papers. And one of those was the uh, either the, the oversight or the inability to look at the industrial base and, and in, terms, in terms of adversaries and, and where they're going in terms of their strategy. Noting that there is a, a degree of um, endurance of that strategy in, in some of the Western democracies' planning, was there a fault as a result that we really did take our eye off the ball? If you look at the PLA and the PLAN and their, and their increasingly massive ramp up of their maritime assets and, and really only looked at the, the capability at sea rather than what was coming down the pipe uh, and then reacting to that. I don't think so. I don't think we, anyone took their eye off the ball. It's it's a complex management of a number of issues that that play into the development of of other navies. When we talk about you know Corbett's understanding, it's it's important to recognize that he was talking about some principles of maritime strategy, not all principles. And there was even a discussion that talked about how obviously the, these contours change because of the historical dimension. Technology being one example of that. But in terms of 
of the growth of a particular navy versus a different navy. Uh, I think that the, you know the fundamental principles that Corbett was espousing and the one that people principally take away about the role of navies in being able to shape or not shape events on land is probably the most germane and has great applicability to this discussion between the United States and China. So how does how does conflict progress over time, say, from an initial kinetic phase to an end for the Allied partners? And I suppose in particular because of the A&I and where we are today, Australia in particular and the Royal Australian Navy. To further that scene, there are many of us that rightly or wrongly believe that there are grounds that we could already be in, in an act of conflict. Yet does the traditional Western linear approach persist? Uh, where we focus on a distinction between non-kinetic and kinetic being the key separator identifier. Yet, of course, if the CCP believes it is already at war, are we yet to acknowledge this ourselves? And what does that mean from a planning perspective or even an operational perspective right now? Paul? I'm going to start with the first premise about, you know, whether we are already at war. Mao is famous for saying, War is uh, politics with bloodshed, and politics is simply war with without bloodshed. And it illustrates the duality between, or the relationship between conflict and the, the conduct of political relationships, which is actually very Clausewitzian, and, and Mao was a, a big fan of, of Clausewitz. So I think, you know, when you say a Western linear approach, militaries obviously enjoy or, or appreciate very mechanical linear processes for ways of thinking through problems because they have to coordinate the actions of many different people or organizations. And so a process for arriving at those those kinds of things tends to be mechanistic and linear. But we have to also recognize that within the West itself, there are also these more complex, organic ways of thinking about politics and conflict, of which you know, Clausewitz was writing in reaction to those very linear notions that were first being advanced by Jomini and and, mm. and some of the other early uh, Enlightenment thinkers. So I'm not entirely sure, first, that the West is simply linear. And secondly, I think we always have to keep in mind that there is an organic relationship between normal politics and outright warfare, and, and the two of them overlap. And, and the decision to go to war is always going to be a political one. So to go back to where I started with, with Mao, is China at war with us right now? I'm a, always a little bit alarmed by statements like that. Clearly, China is in conflict with us, is in competition right. with us. But the decision to go to war is a fundamental state of change in the nature of relationship because you're actually using violence to advance your ends at that point. So... Is China at war with us right now? No, it's not at war with us right now. And I think it's dangerous to say that China is at war because that perhaps leads us on a path to particular conflicts. Right. That is interesting. And I wonder whether or not that language that you use in terms of separation between conflict and war drives the thinking, you know, at the respective government policy levels as well, because does one attract a higher level of degree of urgency? both politically, policy-wise, and operational-wise. Uh, Jeff, on that point, and to follow up with Paul. No, I think, uh, I think it's a really important distinction that we're making here. And in our maritime strategy, we call it a global competition uh, with China uh, and a number of other actors. But principally, China is identified uh, within our particular strategy. I think it is a shift in uh, thinking in terms of uh, linearity of uh, outcomes and uh, actions taken by military forces. Um, we've we've gone away from uh, a simple definition that says, okay, there's either war or there's not war, uh, but there's certainly a competition that's going on in new arenas, uh, cyberspace and uh, space itself, uh, and then the competition in the maritime domain for uh, the cooperative elements uh, with our partners and allies as well as we look to uh, maintain the international order as it is today. Do you think we're facing an adversary that seeks parity or superiority? And there is a difference there. And I use the word our adversary in this stage, and, and it's the CCP running, obviously, the PRC. 
Well, I think if you read their writings, uh, you see that they want a more significant role in the global order. Uh, and there are elements of that that don't match uh, the current uh, perspective on what the international maritime order should look like, uh, despite the fact that they're uh, signatories of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. They, they have expanded their outlook. And, you know, we can talk about near seas and far seas, but at the same time, you know, uh, CCP or China, uh, they're global now. Uh, they're, they're working across all the elements of, of power, uh, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic, uh, to become that global influence and to potentially displace the, the United States as one of the leaders of the world. Just going back to the maritime capability in this pre-conflict or pre-engagement scenario that may or may not happen, do you see the maritime capability uh, both of Australia, the US, uh, Canada, and to some degree the UK in this region with their recent commitment under AUKUS to uh, increase their presence here, is less of a frontline capability force these days over, say, um, land warfare or, or indeed strike from airborne assets, and it's actually become a secondary staging post or a support post to either encrypt, decrypt, intercept, and almost become a floating forward operating base in that sense. So to protect the trade on the seas, which China needs as well as Australia, does maritime actually take a back seat here? And it's, a, it's an enabler rather than a, a force leader. Well, I would say that that's uh, exactly Corbett's point. You have to uh, create effects on land on the land. Uh, and it uh, provides a, a definition of what maritime forces can and can't do. I think one of the challenges of, is, is in the modern world is the recognition of the nuclear capabilities that the nations have and how that changes uh, your types of actions. As you talk about you know, the range of options available to a nation, it really kind of depends on the contours of what the fight is going to be about. Is this a, is this a territorial issue? Is this a, uh, an, an underscoring of the, the maritime uh, principle Principles of the law of the sea? Is this uh, Mar Nostrum with RC? Does the sea belong to China because it has the word China in the name of the sea? Or is it Mar Librum, uh, the freedom of the seas, which is an international order that's existed for hundreds of years that we're trying to maintain? Oh, I, th I think we can bring this back to Corbett as well. Uh, in, in many ways, in your comments about whether he missed something with, with industrialization or, or what have you. You know, to start with, China, historically speaking, uh, at least in, in the modern period, it has never been a sea power. It has traditionally been a land power. There was uh, uh, Admiral He, of course, who, who did his famous uh, tour around the, the globe. But post that, it, it largely uh, was a land power. And so did we miss the emergence of, of Chinese sea power? Probably because we were thinking about it as a land power. But... To come back to Corbett, Corbett made distinctions between sea powers and land powers and how those behave differently in a strategic and in a military fashion. Mm. And what we deal with today is very different from the history that he was looking at, which was basically the 17th and 18th century and the, the early parts of the 21st century. And I think Australia is a great example of this in terms of China clearly poses a challenge, possibly a threat to Australia, and yet it is your dominant trading partner. And disentangling right. that is going to be incredibly difficult because there's just not any other place that Australia can go to. And I think that's the challenge in thinking about land power, sea power, space power, cyber power, information power, the power that the international trading system, which China wants to influence, are now all fully intermeshed with one another. And so thinking about it purely from a sea power perspective or a land power perspective misses a lot of the complexity in that. And I think that's what makes this both promising and dangerous at the same time. Hopefully, it is that those interdependencies that restrain powers from actually going to war. But in the event of war, it means that the outcomes or the events that will flow after the decision to go 
will be very, very unpredictable. Uh, and we can just see, I mean, with the, the shipping container crisis that took place earlier this year, mm -hmm. which was all about COVID restrictions and staffing shortages and shortages of truckers in the United States uh, and difficulties in getting goods out of China and, and the, the nature of the container traffic going both ways across the Pacific. All of those things are really, really complex problems to resolve and, and take time and good faith. And if, if we lose that good faith, then, then it means understanding where it goes next is a challenge. You're absolutely spot on. And I think this is where we can draw, to some degree, I suppose, a difference between, you know, the Cold War of Russia and this lukewarm war <laughs> with China. It is that trade versus defense and security. And to some degree, if not completely, the Australian government has a diametrically opposed, you know, scenario here where it's trade policy versus its defense and security policy are at loggerheads. Well, look at what happened, you know, with the Ukraine war. For the last 30 years, Germany has run a very pro-Russia policy that sought to atone for, you know, the, obviously the history of the Second World War and trying to integrate Russia in, in the hopes that it could make it a reliable partner. And its energy policy with Russia was central to that whole thing. Uh, and then Russia behaves in a particular way, which obviously makes that very policy now a direct threat to the German state and the German economy. Right. And they're trying desperately to, to rejigger that whole thing. Yes. And I think, you know, that's just one sector. It's just the energy sector. Critical, but with China, the interrelationships with the supply chains, with resources, with uh, all manner of different uh, uh, elements there really, really raise significant questions. Andrew Lambert, uh, you know, brilliant military historian, the, the key historian on Corbett, but his comments at the conference about the ease of interdicting Chinese trade, which is geographically undeniable, but I think about the Germans interdicting the energy or the Russians interdicting the energy and the consequences that Europeans are going to pay this winter yes. because of that, cutting off China in terms of our trade would create enormous chaos that would have global impacts, not just in the Western alliance, but in Africa, in Central Asia, and managing the political outcome from that from a coalition perspective, would be probably as crucial to the prosecution of any conflict with China as the actual naval operations that might take place to cut that trade. Jeff, any, any comments on that? No, I think it's uh, really uh, an understanding of all the uh, capabilities that both nations have or all nations. And, you know, it, it's it's also a discussion of, you know, is this a coalition conflict? Is this a China versus uh, United States conflict only? Uh, we like to think it's a coalition event uh, because we fight better with partners and allies. And I think as nations prepare uh, as best one can for shifts in the, the global uh, interdependencies. And this is the part of what Paul was talking about is, is how globalization itself has changed uh, the way that we can execute elements of international power. And within that is a discussion about, you know, as we embraced Russia or Germany embraced Russia, you know, are we in a place now where uh, there's a, a different sense of weakness in among the powers uh, of the West. And these are complex challenges. Yeah. And then that's part of the evolution of, of history, but uh, also the, the, the evolution of uh, military forces and its applicability in the, in the domains today. Uh, but I do think that uh, as we talk about some of these incredibly complex challenges, trying to understand them and their application for the future, absolutely critical uh, if you're going to have the readiness and preparedness you need to be able to execute your missions. I'm just going to come back to the trade versus defense policy challenge, uh, which clearly impacts Australia and no doubt other Western allied nations as well. There was a report that the ANI and the Australian Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales wrote a couple of years ago. It was updated quite recently. Uh, it calculates that the maritime trade in Australia accounts for over 99% of Australia's imports and exports by volume uh, and over 79% by value. And that's quite, obviously quite significant. And I'm sure that that's not all China-based trade in terms of the bilateral exchange. 
but one can assume on those numbers it's pretty significant. Is it a case where we might see the development of our navies actually operating in, we, we've got the two oceans, uh, you know, policy, but do we see an increasing level of, of a responsibility for our respective navies to actually execute a higher level role of constabulary uh, services to maintain those supply chains, either in the event of a conflict, during the conflict, post the conflict, or to stop the conflict and let that happen elsewhere, and that's the role of the maritime and the naval capability and forces. Well, I think that's what navies do in peacetime anyways. I suppose I was talking about more about stepping it up, right, sure, but, but as in you terms s- of presence. Right, and of course, it's a, the conflict would be something to the effect of, you know, how many ships does it take to, to do those kind of things. So, you know, I think in the, uh, the international domain today, I wouldn't necessarily use the words constabulatory as much as I would use the words, you know, maintaining the current global international order, the freedom of the seas on which that entire economy that you were talking about is is the foundation. Um, without that, then you have these challenges of of, of the the global dependencies on the on the trade, and particularly China uh, as it stands today. And like to think they're going to have the same kind of challenges when they make a choice. Uh, as to, as to whether they choose to, to have a conflict uh, with the West or and with the partners and allies that uh, hopefully are willing to support that order. I think it's really incredibly challenging uh, to look at uh, these things independently. It's it's not just a, a maritime thing. It's a, it, it is a diplomatic and economic and informational uh, challenge. And uh, what we've seen, though, and that's uh, the best part of this conversation, is how that global interdependence Mm. Uh, is creating even greater challenges than we can even think of. How long can a conflict last when you have that kind of globalization? Yeah, it's a great point, Jeff. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, and we can only just go back to the recent conflict of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, albeit, obviously, NATO didn't step in. They supported, but didn't step in. And the exit strategy initially, certainly to those at the general public viewing level, was a strangulation of the global finance lines. Yet here we are still in a conflict. Yes, a bit of a retreat from Russia. But even if that was their exit strategy, it hasn't worked. And if you look back on all previous conflicts over history, there's never really been, I would say, a a suitable win-win agreement. But does that mean that fights have to finish win-win? I mean, the traditional sense is someone loses, right? But given the changes in what we've just spoken about and the dependencies of the global community on that trade side and things that don't touch defense but are going to be impacted by this conflict, we've got a new paradigm in that sense. Paul? I think it's, it's a really good point. And I think what is really interesting in watching the dynamics that are going on between Russia Ukraine and China and India, for example, mm-hmm. uh, is fascinating. You know, Russia clearly thought it could do a, a fait accompli based on what it was able to do in, in 2014. It thought this was, you know, everybody always assumes the war is going to be over by Christmas. Yeah. And it clearly, the Ukrainians had learned their lessons uh, and were prepared for the Russians uh, in a way that the, the, the Russians didn't anticipate. But the other thing is, you know, that Russia had made a series of strategic assumptions about how it would be able to weather what it clearly expected in terms of Western sanctions and and the reaction. I think it knew that NATO would not intervene directly and would just use its its economic power. So it set up that meeting with uh, Xi Mm. uh, just prior to the invasion. Hasn't worked out so well. And I think really the, the recent conference that took place, I think it was in Uzbekistan, in in recent weeks, where both Xi and Modi, there was a lot of teeth sucking going on about what Russia, you know, is doing. And, you know, while the the agreement is supposedly without limits between Mm. Russia and China, clearly there are limits. Yeah. And I don't think the Chinese are particularly happy with what has gone on. Uh, Clearly, it has complicated their movement their gradual movement towards Taiwan. And now that's stirred up things quite a bit and and complicated those affairs in a significant way. And I think they've been surprised, uh, you know, that uh, by Modi's statement in particular, 
that was something that I I wasn't expecting. I uh, and and I was actually quite pleased to see that Modi uh, was was lecturing Putin on on that whole affair. So to go back, yes, Russia still has a lot of reserves in terms of military capacity that it can bring to bear and. In its back pocket are nuclear weapons, and, and it likes to throw those threats around. As we've seen recently, again, with more But But I, I think escalation at this point poses profound risks internally and externally to, to Russia from unpredictable directions. And, and I think if Russia were to significantly escalate this, particularly the use of nuclear weapons, I think those would be red lines for the for the Chinese and they would certainly be red lines for, for the Indians as well. And so, and so Putin really is in a corner right now and that makes him profoundly dangerous. But it also illustrates the limits of traditional ways of thinking about military power because yeah. all of these other elements that have been brought in diplomatically, informationally, economically, and the very web of relationships that we've been talking about in terms of globalization. I just wanted to actually just pull on that point a bit more, Paul, uh, and just turning yourself, Jeff. Uh, so from your time at the Navy on the 7th Fleet, um, we speak about Russia and their naval capability on the East Coast in terms of supporting any level of uh, brinkmanship and pushing or possibly prepare or engage in conflict with supporting China. Is the conflict in Ukraine, has it diminished that? Um, is it still, you know, relevant? And, and what added dynamic does that bring into a, say, I hate to use the phrase, a combined maritime force for China and Russia, but that's essentially what, what I'm asking, I suppose. You know, I, I think a couple things have been uh, illustrated by the, the conflict in Ukraine, and and one is the the conventional capabilities that Russia has been able to uh, display are not quite what everybody thought they were going to be. Uh, they're they're not superpower kind of level. They're still incredibly dangerous, as Paul points out. Um, and so they do have naval forces, you know, in in the Pacific, and they do have submarines and nuclear submarines, and and that's uh, you know one of those other elements that affect, you know, the way that you have to interact. And it's been one of the limiting factors of uh, the interactions in Ukraine. I think, as Paul points out, incredibly challenging, uh, you know, with this discussion about the use of nuclear weapons. And I'd like to think it's also a red line for the United States uh, and, and hopefully the United Nations as well. But uh, in terms of, you know, what their future potential is. And I think the other thing you see uh, is, is a uh, crack in the shell uh, of uh, the the population's support uh, for the leadership. Now you're seeing, uh, I think, the largest number of flights for people to get out of Russia uh, before they're conscripted for their reservist yes. duties. And, you know, that dialogue is, is, is unheard of a year ago. Uh, and so I, I think there are some challenges uh, internally for, uh, for, for Putin to have to deal with. Yeah, Paul. The other thing I think that's really important to keep in mind here when you're talking about the possibilities of strategic or military cooperation between the Russians and the Chinese, that is one thing that the West is super good at. Mm. It practices it on a regular basis. Our navies are highly interoperable. The ability to exchange information uh, between an American ship, an Australian ship, a Canadian ship, a British ship, you know, all of these things are, are the, the unquantifiable factors that, that go into military effectiveness. And so while Russia deploys very fearsome looking ships, the Chinese, they have like 800 vessels that they can employ between the, the PLAN or the, their Coast Guard or, or the, these maritime militias. The ability to actually conduct complex military operations at sea in hostile environment is untested. And the Russians and the Chinese, they, they interact, you know, occasionally, but not to the degree of complexity that Western fleets regularly practice amongst themselves. And so, again, I think there's a bit of a Potemkin village. Now, I, I wouldn't want to push that logic too far and say we don't have anything to worry about here. But I do think that that is one of those things that we have as an advantage, even if we are numerically not uh, at the same level as, as the Chinese. I, I had the privilege of going aboard the uh, USS Abraham Lincoln a few years back and watch. They were doing cyclical operations training 
And they ran that ship 24-7. The entire time I was there, they never stopped. You know, F-18s were taking off and landing and taking off and landing and doing their, their training missions and that sort of thing. When I look at the Liaoning and the other carriers that China is building, mm. I have to wonder, can it do cyclical operations in the manner that an American carrier battle group right. is able to support? And that says a lot about its ability to actually project power at sea. Jeff? I, I think that's a, a particularly good point. Uh, on the other hand, the challenge would be that there is a point at which quantity has a quality all its own. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, although our ability to run 24-7 uh, carry ops is just part of our charm and it contributes to our uh, capabilities at sea, as China matures, as their uh, People Liberation Army Navy continues to mature, uh, their capability is growing at an exponential rate. Uh, and, and we balance that, of course, with our uh, combatant commander's strategy, uh, forward presence, and through our partnerships and allies. Absolutely. Which brings me on to a point I'd like to raise that um, obviously there's been a lot of change in certainly the UK government leadership. We've got a new government in Australia uh, after 10 years of the Liberal Party. Uh, we now have the Australian Labour Party in charge. And there's a general consensus across the board that, you know, defence and strategy is uh, is an agreed policy, which is okay. There is also obviously, rightly or wrongly, a globally perceived potential weakened US administration. And obviously the passing of um, Queen Elizabeth II from a constitutional stability perspective. Does um, China and especially the CCP and Xi Jinping use this period or opportunity as a sign to continue and nudge that shift and test those new administrations and leadership's resolve, uh, beliefs and policies. And recently, somebody that you probably know, Jeff, um, Deputy Secretary of Defence and Plans, uh, previous Elbridge Colby, uh, recently wrote quite an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal and published a book last year, which is a fascinating read, stating that the Western democracy is a, a, an all-time weak point in terms of its acknowledgement, its preparedness, its finances, and its acknowledgement of that threat, possibly on the hard power and the soft power side. And if we take the latter, we've seen these further incursions of trying to disrupt the trade blocks or the relationships by China in the South Pacific, with most recently the, the Solomon Islands. So just at that high level, do, do we see another dynamic paradigm shift emerging here which are we prepared for? What does that look like? Do we just let it happen? I don't know. Well, I would challenge in some ways the the idea that there's a weakened uh, U.S. administration, and it, and it's not a political statement. It's it's the idea that you know our foundational power remains the same. You know, and for all our warts, we're still quite capable uh, across the spectrum of all of the the sources of power. Uh, and and a fundamental part of that is the the alliances and partnerships that that we've talked about. I think as you look at you know, what nations do, nations operate in their own interest. Uh, and China has stated specific timelines by which they'd like to achieve some of these, these different elements. Uh, they certainly have exhibited malign behavior in, you know, reinforcing uh, outposts and, you know, through the number of different claims, uh, their uh, inability to recognize the decisions of the international courts. Um, so there are many who say, you know, the window is slow, slowly getting to be a shorter and shorter period of time. And our uh, Indo-Pacific commander has said that, you know, the, uh, the challenges uh, with China probably come to a head within five years. Mm. And that should give us all pause. Um, you know, we're accustomed to living in a, uh, a Cold War world where, yep, there are, there are tensions, but you find the mechanisms by which you de-escalate it. Uh, of course, you want to avoid war at all costs for, for, you know, one more year, one more month, one more week, one more day, one more hour, one more second. Uh, and because there's an awful lot at stake, not only in terms of treasure, but in terms of valuable human life. Uh, and that's where I think the, the challenge becomes is that the window is closing, their capability is growing. Part of our charm is that we, you know, communicate 
you know, all of our capabilities, all of our plans, uh, all of our, our shortcomings. And I think that's why people say, oh, you know, the, the, the democracy is weak. And I, I've read the article by uh, Elbridge Colby, and he's, he's such a brilliant man. Mm. And, and I think it's, it's worthwhile to have this discussion, as all uh, republics, uh, we often say democracy, but republics do, uh, because it's the only way you're going to improve for the future and hold on to that ability to avoid conflict. I'm going to disagree slightly here. Obviously, I don't disagree about the professional capability uh, of Western militaries uh, to conduct, you know, effective military operations in many ways. I mean, I, I think there, there are real questions about the sustainability of those things. And, and Ukraine has shown that in terms of, you know, the difficulty of replacing high-tech equipment Having to restart the the production lines for Stinger missiles, for example, you know, right. that, that, that shut down for for decades, and that just goes right across the whole board. And if we were in the midst of uh, a global cl- conflagration where everybody wants Stinger missiles, uh, it begs the question of you know how are we going to to, to replace the stuff, uh, you know, that that it's going to be expended at such high volumes. And I think that that's a problem even for the United States, but it is definitely a problem for Canada and probably a problem for for Australia as well. So let's just assume, you know, we'll we'll make the assumption that professionally and capability wise, the West has very effective military forces. I think to go back to that argument about the inherent weakness that exists within democracies. So presently, I would say that is true. We have to acknowledge that the the political institutions of all of our nations are currently up for debate. Mm. And it's not just in the United States. It's in Canada as well. So you're talking about values, the the values of the democratic society. The commitment to the institutions. Yeah, yeah. And how they work in protecting our rights and protecting the society that we want to live within and what that society should look like. The kind of questions that have been raised by identity politics in all of our societies chip away at our fundamental unity in, in pursuing big political projects. And that includes the political projects that we want to see happen internationally. So far-right governments, you know, elected in in Sweden, in Italy, uh, clearly growing in Germany, growing in Canada uh, as well. All of them raising significant questions. And I'm not saying that those questions are illegitimate. I think many of them are legitimate questions about who we want to be as a people. Mm. And I think that raises the possibility of, one, manipulation— by cynical actors like China and Russia, and clearly they are interested in doing that. I think the Russians are more effective at it than than China is, uh, just simply for cultural reasons. But clearly those are are opportunities that have a, a dramatic impact in this interstitial period between where we are today in a state of peace, competitive peace, and a potential war in the future. The other thing, though, I'll, and I'll just, because an academic always wants to throw in some complications and qualifications, <laughs> the other thing is, is it has ever been thus yeah. with democracies. Yeah. And, you know, as Winston Churchill said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones. Yes. And the other famous statement is, you know, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried every other alternative. You know, I I think there's fundamental truth in all of that, that we are critical societies. We are constantly trying to aim for ideals that are essentially unattainable because it would be a utopia. And so we're always dissatisfied with our societies. We always think it can be better. And a robust civic discussion, as long as it remains civic, Mm -hmm. is a healthy sign of democracy. But clearly there is danger for coalitions of democratic nations as they move through a period of, and we saw this in the 1930s, but ultimately those governments came together. And I think it was really heartening in the way that those governments came together to support the Ukrainians uh, when when war broke out in February, because that wasn't a sure thing that everybody was going to line up behind them. And yet we did. And so that's heartening, but it also keeps me up at night. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Um, So, Paul, I suppose just following on from that, um, I'm intrigued to play a scenario, uh, if I may, based on everything we've spoken about 
thus far that should a Royal Australian Naval platform, let's say, be damaged in a close quarters situation through some case of miscalculation, what would be the reaction from that Western Alliance community? You know, what does Australia do? And just to further that scenario, if it was reversed and it was, say, to happen to a US naval platform, would the outcomes or next steps be very different? So where would that put Australia and what does that mean? So I'm going I'm to look at it from a Canadian lens because that's what I'm comfortable with. And first off, to start with the American example, I think the outcome would be fairly certain. If, if China took a shot at an American ship and damaged it or, God forbid, sank it, I think that would be, you know, literally a Pearl Harbor moment for the United States. I think right. I think the cultural significance of the United States Navy and its assets are, you know, particularly in, in conflict with a great power like China. You can see what America did, you know, when, when the Libyans and the Iranians occasionally took shots at, you know, mm. that, that there were consequences to be paid. But from Canada, you know, we, we send our ships through the East China Sea, through the Taiwan Strait, you know, as a demonstration of freedom of navigation on yeah. a regular basis. We've increasingly been sending them through the South China Sea as well. They usually are sailing in conjunction with an American uh, task group uh, when they do that, but occasionally they have done it on their own. And I can't help but worry that if China really wanted to send a message and really wanted to complicate coalition politics, going after a Canadian ship would be a, a smart strategic move. You know, our ships, our small frigates, are capital ships for us. And we don't have many of them. And the loss of one would be a significant blow to our naval capability. Uh, they would be incredibly difficult to replace. Wow. And I think it would provoke a political crisis in Canada about what are we doing in the Pacific and is this really in our interest and do we want to tangle with this kind of thing? And I think that would be exactly the kind of result that China would be looking. I don't know where it would end up, mm. but I do know that it would have real strategic consequences for Ottawa. Wow, Jeff. Incredibly complex uh, question, of course, and and mm. and, and at, at that level, I think you know, aside from the inherent right of self-defense and the specific rules of engagement that may change uh, based on uh, the evolution of the time uh, and, and the time and space that uh, a ship might find themselves, I think it's challenging because it's really a political decision as to what happens next. And that political decision will be based on a lot of factors to include what intelligence do we have. Right. You know, I'm not saying what we do, because I really wouldn't know. Is it an accident? Does that change the, the perspective on, on what one does? Yeah. Uh, you know, is, is China, uh, you know, apologetic for what happened and yet the intelligence says something different? That does change, uh, I think, the perspective that the national command authority would utilize in making this decision. Ships will defend themselves. Uh, that's, that's part of uh, the obligations of command. Uh, but uh, answering your question is incredibly difficult. If it is uh, stated as something deliberate and something bad happens to U.S. platforms, I am confident that uh, our great Navy and our great nation will defend our interests anywhere in the world. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. Uh, and that doesn't surprise me. You're absolutely right. But just coming back to your point about the vulnerability of the Canadian Navy in this kind of democratic Western alliance, because you guys obviously clearly part of that. And we spoke earlier about interoperability of systems, missiles, all the other subsystems that uh, are on platforms, both at sea, undersea, and in the air and on land. Interchangeability is also something that, uh, you know, is a force multiplier, certainly at the resource level under these combined forces approach. Is it fair to say that from uh, an interoperability perspective, Jeff, that, you know, through Talisman Sabre and RIMPAC, and, you know, you, you spoke earlier, Paul, about, you know, the ability to war game and test systems, and we do that very well. Are we now seeing the need to actually look at that interchangeability aspect to, to actually increase the, the presence? We spoke about size. We can talk about lethality, which is interoperability. Are we now looking at presence and size through interchangeability? And that's something that we've really got to, you know, accept as, as nations to cart people around, so to speak. 
I, I think that's happening naturally. Yeah. Uh, I think there's greater focus on it. I think you see things like uh, a UK deployment to the Western Pacific. You see increased uh, freedom of navigation ops and and uh, potentially uh, navigation operations that are done with uh, multi in a multinational kind of way. I think these are really an important reflection of signaling uh, to potential adversaries that uh, the the world is here to defend the existing global maritime order. Mm. And we take it quite seriously. Oh. There's often a question about whether Canada is a Pacific power or not. Uh, and I, th I think there's, there's, those are legitimate questions on, on the part of Australia or the ASEAN nations or, 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 or other Pacific partners. But it's clear that Canada wants to be considered as a Pacific nation, wants to contribute more. Uh, currently, the CAF has two long-term and ongoing operations, Op Neon, uh, which is uh, naval support through the contribution of a frigate, one interesting uh, uh, contribution of a, of a submarine at one point, uh, and CP-140s, or Orion uh, uh, anti-submarine warfare and ISR platforms, uh, have all been operating out of Japan uh, yeah. in support of, uh, of UN sanctions off of North Korea. Uh, and the second one is Op Projection, and uh, that has been a annual frigate that has gone into uh, the Southeast Asian area and working with Southeast Asian navies. And this year, actually, we sent two frigates, uh, again, amping up that contribution that, that we're trying to establish uh, in all of this. But as I said, our Navy is a small one. It uh, has lost, it's, it's going to regain shortly, but it lost the ability to operate as a task force uh, which was something that it enjoyed throughout the 1980s and 1990s and, and uh, operated very effectively in, in uh, the Gulf of Oman and, and the Persian Gulf during the first Gulf War and, and during Operation Enduring Freedom. But we lost that. We lost our theater air defense missiles. We lost our, our uh, afloat uh, logistics. We're just coming back online with, those, uh, with that capability. And so it meant we had to integrate with other ships uh, you couldn't just send a frigate. I mean, a frigate uh, is a nice piece of kit, but it needs support. It's it's a part of a larger piece. Uh, and so it had to integrate. Uh, the, the RCN has been really good at integrating into uh, American carrier battle groups to the extent that for a period of time, at least, uh, USN was willing to leave behind one of its own frigates because the Canadian Navy uh, operated at that level of, of effectiveness uh, inside the task force. But it makes our, it, us profoundly vulnerable mm. to the provision of those support services to our ship that we deploy. And as I said, if you were a Chinese strategist and you wanted to, to put a spanner into the works, I would go after the Canadian ship. Because, again, it would call into question politically, you know, what are we doing? And is this really in our interest? And, uh, you know, my, my presentation at the conference uh, really talked a lot about this. Canada is a very, very secure nation. It has three oceans around yeah. three of its sides, and its southern border is guarded by, by an, an American superpower. Yeah. And its defense forces reflect that security. So, you know, you look at the differences between the Canadian Armed Forces and the Australian Defence Forces, and they're dramatic. We are similar-sized countries. We operate with similar levels of wealth and industrial yeah. development in that. But your capabilities are far more robust than what we deploy. Uh, and our government is much more pecuniary uh, in terms of its procurement, and it takes much longer to make up its mind to spend a lot of money on the military, which most Canadians say, what do I get out of this? Not much, actually, because my security, I live in a gated community. Yeah. I don't have to worry about these things. Yeah. And I'm not sure actually contributing things in Asia Pacific is, is in my interest as a taxpayer. Right. Yeah. I've dealt with public works a few times in the years, <laughs> and uh, I know exactly where you're coming from, Jeff. I, I think it's an important discussion, but, you know, assuming that and going back to the original question about, you know, if, if something happens to a Royal Australian Navy uh, ship, uh, but same idea with this, this example about a Canadian ship, it's worth talking about the value of the alliances. And, you know, to my answer where I, I spoke specifically to the U.S. Uh, part of the question because uh, it, it involved a U.S. Navy ship, uh, 
our nation will support the alliances uh, that we've made. Uh, and to the extent that there's some sort of uh, uh, altercation is taking place in which our allies are, are, are under attack for some reason, uh, I don't think there should be any doubt uh, about our response. Just picking up your point, um, Jeff, there about the alliances and the agreements that we have, I was actually talking to Rear Admiral uh, Shindashan last night just about the Quad and um, some of the things he's been picking up in terms of the, the, the Chinese influence to destabilize that or kind of get in the middle. And if anything, you know, we need to double back on that and reinforce it, of course. Um, and the same applies to the traditional Five Eyes, which, of course, Canada's part of, Paul. And notionally been seen more as an in intelligence sharing, at, you know, level type agreement. But if I come on to AUKUS, which is obviously the flavor of everyone's uh, month, yeah. It was a year ago, I believe, this week that the UK, the US and Australia signed that agreement. Um, there is a perception, which in some people's minds is a reality, that all AUKUS is about is a nuclear submarine for Australia. It's a lot more than that. From a Canadian perspective, did you look at AUKUS? Have you got views of that? Uh, should you, should you not be part of that? Is it another layer of protection that you think, based on this conversation, Canada should really be you know, trying to knock on the door of, or has it tried, or what's the scenario there? So, so it, it's a complicated answer because there's a variety of perspectives on it. And and I, I wrote a piece that I think got me invited to the conference that was very critical of the fact that we weren't uh, invited to AUKUS. And, and I mean, it's not just Five Eyes, there's the ABCA agreement as well between right. the armies, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of that. Uh, so we, suddenly we were outside of you know, a group of nations whom we constantly work together with. The government's reaction was, well, this is a deal between these three states and uh, it, it doesn't really involve us and we're not, we're not concerned by it. I think within the security community, and I include, you know, the CAF, CSIS, which is our uh, domestic security organization, the, the CSE, which is our signals intelligence, uh, and defense intellectuals across the country, were shocked by that. And I think a lot of them looked at it and said, we understand why we weren't included, you know, because we're not being taken seriously by our partners. Um, and, and that goes back to that gated community issue that, that, that I raised earlier. But for the average Canadian, it was a total non-event. Right. It just it, like completely irrelevant. This is a, a, a thing far away, far away people, far away places, and really doesn't impact me uh, as a taxpayer in, in any significant way. You know, again, I, I, I think there's, there's a variety of ways that we can look at it, but from a security perspective, I, th I think it absolutely yeah. is an indictment against the strategic approach that Canada's pursued for the last 50 or 60 years, actually. Right. And just to finish that point off, is it still a live debate in the right circles, or is it really just drifting away now in Canada, up at the hill there in Ottawa? I think it's going to be interesting to see how this, this evolves, because as I said, Canada wants to be a, a, an actor in, in Asia-Pacific security. They Clearly, they look at the Quad, they look at AUKUS, they look at things like uh, the uh, ASEAN Defence Ministers Meeting Plus, uh, the East Asia Summit. These are all things that Canada does not belong to and wants to, to have some sort of impact. You know, we I've already mentioned the various naval diplomacy and, and military diplomacy that's being conducted in the Pacific, but also from a trade perspective, you know, we, we were we were a partner behind the, what is it, the comprehensive and progressive, uh, you know, I, the, it was the TPP. It became much longer uh, yeah. once the Americans exited, but that was a clear indication that we want to be seen as a reliable partner in the Pacific. But I think the region is looking at us and saying, I'm not sure you are. Right. And I suppose as we draw to a close, and this is the right topic uh, really to leave this on, AUKUS agreement, because is it the bow around the present, so to speak, as we face this new challenge with a rising China that, that, that is constantly pushing? Just from a US perspective, Jeff, on AUKUS and its broader responsibilities and, and its potential vehicle and, and what Paul's just said, What's the view at Capitol Hill and amongst the professionals uh, and, and the likes of yourself on this agreement and China? Well, I think any time you can uh, enhance your partnerships, enhance your alliances, 
expand capabilities for the future, uh, better support information sharing, uh, create an even more foundational understanding. Uh, it's very much viewed as a, as, a, as a force multiplier, something that makes us all better. You know, as we look at the, the broader context of, of what we've described here today, uh, which is really this idea of a Thucydides trap, yeah. uh, that somehow when you have a rising power, there must be a confrontation. And uh, Graham Allison wrote a book called Destined for War, uh, in which he describes a history, a, a thousands of years of history uh, of this phenomenon occurring. Uh, and I think at the same time, we have to understand that uh, the, the trap doesn't have to result in, in a conflict and that we have to do our own part. Uh, all of us as global partners have to do our own part to try to avoid conflict at, at any cost. Of course, we're going to be ready when, that, if, when and if that day comes, uh, and hopefully it doesn't. Uh, but our preparedness, our readiness only gets better as a function of things like AUKUS. Yeah, completely agree. And just to, I suppose, say one final word, you know, history, as Dr. Brendan Nelson mentioned in his speech last night, it is a barometer, of course, of predicting the future, uh, not necessarily in lottery tickets, but, but certainly we learn a lot of lessons and we ignore it at our peril. Yes, there are changes around the edges, of course, which brings us back to Corbett, of course, uh, even though it's 100 years since the passing of Sir Julian Corbett, there are many things that are still extremely relevant and prevalent today. We just have to sprinkle some new new edges to that. So unfortunately, that's uh, all we've got time for today, uh, gentlemen. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure our listeners and members of the ANI and beyond have as well. So we continue to watch with uh, immense, delicious trepidation uh, in seeing how this may or may not turn out. Well, there'll always be a turnout, of course. Um, there's lots of moving parts. And um, as you said, Admiral Harley, we're prepared. We have to be prepared. Thanks very much, gentlemen, for joining me. Thank you so much. Been a pleasure, Simon. Our guests today were Rear Admiral retired Jeffrey Harley and Professor Paul Mitchell. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing, and following Saltwater Strategists wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find out more on our website at navalinstitute.com.au and follow us on social media pages. And if you're not a member of the Australian Naval Institute, then consider signing up today to continue hearing, contributing, reading and attending events covering subjects such as this one today. I've been your host, Simon Wallstrom, and thanks for listening.